Voices of Pim Better Podcast. Hey world, welcome back. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. Today's episode is really special to me. I have Consoli Nishimwe joining me for a conversation. This episode is not going to be about travel stories or anything like that. Consoli is a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. So I guess I should say this in advance. Uh, use your discretion. Uh, we're talking about genocide. So if, if you know, if talking about death or um, rape and sexual abuse are, you know, triggers for you, um, then please use your discretion in listening to this. Uh, Consoli has a really amazing message that I think everybody can benefit from. Um, it's funny because when I do these episodes, sometimes the, the best moments are right before I start recording, uh, and, or right after I start recording. Um, and Consoli is somebody who I think if anyone has, she has deserved the right to, to be angry and to, you know, have hate and to feel as if maybe the world owes her something. Uh, but she's not like that at all, and she, I don't know if it sounds cheesy to say, but, but almost has like an aura about her and is, is really positive, and I think that we can all learn something from her. And this episode hopefully will be educational for you, both in a historical sense and in a uh, self-growth and self-improvement and uh, kind of a... Uh, you know, uh, strengthening of your of your uh, consciousness. So, uh, I really, really hope you enjoy it. I'm going to give away a couple copies of Consoli's book. I did this with the last couple of podcast episodes. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to um, blast this episode out on social media. Instead, if you would like a copy of her book, just shoot me an email. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, it could be feedback. It could be, hey, Tim, I just want a copy of the book. Um, you know, that's totally up to you. So shoot me an email at the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. And, uh, you know, obviously, depending on how many you get, I might not be able to send everybody a book, but I'll send out, you know, a couple copies, two, three, four. Um, I did want to mention that, uh, I'll put this in the show notes too, but the first book that I had read about uh, the Rwandan genocide was called We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. That is by Philip Goyevich. Uh, I'm terrible with names, so hopefully I'm not screwing that up. Uh, Constantly also recommended a book by uh, Dainye Umunyana. Dainye Umunyana. Again, I'm sorry if I'm messing up your name. Her book is called Embracing Survival, and that is also about the genocide, but um, obviously from someone else's perspective. Um, so yeah, I uh, really, really loved having this conversation with Consoli, and um, I'm just, again, I'm humbled and I uh, feel very gracious that I'm able to have these conversations and to share them with you. So without further ado, here is Consoli.
so today I am here with Console Nishimwe, and you are, let me, tell me if all these characterizations are correct, you are yeah. a, an activist, an author, and a survivor. Yeah. Is that how yeah. you would describe yeah. yourself? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right, so I'm trying to... Yeah, to use that um, a platform to be able to be a voice for so many people, so, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming. I'm really, really happy that you're here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor for me to be part of your thank you. conversation here. <laughs> yeah. We were just chatting about this a little bit, but um, I had first seen you speak at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in right. the city on the anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. Right. And we brought kids there, and your uh, your talk was incredibly powerful. Oh, thank and you. I purchased your book afterwards. Uh, Tested to the limit. Is that? Am yeah, I? that's yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it has a long subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that mm -hmm. you know tells a, a really personal and powerful story. And right. so I'd like to, as much as possible, touch on some of that today. Mm -hmm. um, but first. As best as we can possibly do, can we maybe provide people who don't know anything about Rwanda or the genocide in Rwanda with a little bit of context as to the beginning of this and how it started? Because right. mm -hmm. I think depending on who you read, some people might say it traces back to um, Belgian colonization and favoring one ethnic group over the other. Um, how would you describe the beginning of the, the conflict in Rwanda? Thank you. Thank you again so much for having me. It's an honor for me to be part of your conversation here. So, and thank you for reading my story as well. So, um, uh, I'm sure most of the people, you're right, they have different, um, you know, views of how they know about Rwanda and what happened and what you know caused the genocide so and for me um, as a person who you know went through that so as a survivor so I'll just give you a little about you know I can tell a little bit of um, how you know the country was before and then you know um, and then what happened at that time during the genocide so okay. um, before the uh, Belgium came in the country, so the country was, people were happy. So we're just, a, it was a social classes. People were not considered to be, um, uh, they didn't have these ethnic groups and Tutsis and Hutus, it was not considered to be ethnic groups. So it was more about social classes and people knew how to uh, moved to one social class to another. So, um, and it was okay, people were happy living that way. So until the Belgian came in the country, so they changed the whole system into, um, you know, changing the whole system from social classes into um, ethnic groups, which completely changed the way people lived at that time. So, and, um, and introducing identity cards that if you are Hutu and Tutsi, so people will know exactly where you belong. So, and um, and to that point, because of how they favored one group, the Tutsi, the Hutus before, and they realized that um, 
you know, um, it was the Tutsis because we're not probably getting along with what they were they wanted them to do. So they realized that the only way they can um, probably uh, make sure that um, they are powerful. So they had to separate them, showing that, you know, um, Hutus see the Tutsis are not good people. They want to you know, uh, you know, you should not allow them to have power in the country. So, and by um, actually um, introducing identity cards and showing them how uh, different they are, it really created um, a problem in the country. So, for me, you know, growing up, pretty much I didn't, you know, my parents, um, not, not very much they talked about that, but I knew. I've heard about it in the history before, like how, you know, all those things started. But then, of course, growing up, um, that's when I knew that the Tutsis were mistreated. So since 1959, uh, because the Hutus at the time uh, were on power, so they started uh, persecuting the Tutsis. So many Tutsis from 1959, they went in exile. So many of our family members and other people. So. They were some of them were murdered since then, but uh, until because of how it started before, so it grew into something really worse. Until 1994, they planned a genocide, which is um, a genocide they wanted to exterminate the Tutsis minority. So, and um, most of the some of the Tutsi were in exile, so were you know not really living well because being a refugee some in many of the countries they wanted to come back in their own country so but it was hard for them to be refused to come in their own country so until they formed um, um, a military where they wanted to come to the country in 1990 so um, that's when of course the government at that time they started continuing with planning a genocide which it was um, a well-planned genocide because there are some countries who were behind it. So, uh, some people probably know, others don't know that France was uh, behind um, the, the, the government that was planning the genocide, they helped them, so, which is um, um, very you know, hard for all of us to think that um, someone will be behind of something terrible like that. So, and um, and at that time, for me, um, you know, uh, as a young person, 14 years old in 1994, I could sense really uh, the hate for, you know, the hatred towards the Tutsis, of course, all of us throughout the country. So we were living in fear so um, for a long time. So, but none of us thought that it would be a genocide because um, I mean, we thought they could be something bad, but we never thought it would be a genocide until we saw what happened in 1994. So, and that's when um, the killing started. So, yeah. I have a couple questions that I, mm -hmm. I want to unpack. Mm -hmm. So, with Belgian colonization, mm -hmm. is it, you're saying that the ethnic groups, right, the Hutu and Tutsi, yeah. essentially did not exist? prior to that. Mm -hmm. When they created groups, was there any historical basis to this? Or 
I read, is that your book or I read another long title? Yeah. We wish to inform you that tomorrow yes. we will be killed with Romeo Dallaire, yeah, yeah. And it was either your book or that book that said that like the distinction between these two groups were physical characteristics. Yeah. So was there actually a historical difference between the two groups or this was totally part of a system of control from Belgium? It was part of the control okay. from the Belgium because if you look at them, the both you know people who were those who were called the Tutsis and those who were called Hutus, we are all the same. You all look alike. So, but they wanted just to find a way to control. So they created this way of saying certain. You know, the Tutsis have a certain way by measuring your nose, your skin tone, and looking how we looked like. But some some of the people are taller, others are shorter, but it come both sides. So for me, um, we all look alike. We are all black. We are just nothing really different. So, but somehow because of how they kept reinforcing that in the minds of so many people, some of them believed that the Tutsis are different to who, you know, we are some, of course, the Hutus, some of most of majority believe that we, we look different. So to a point where sometimes when you are tall, you have a long nose. So immediately or so, this is a Tutsi. So it will be, it created something really bad in the minds of people. So sometimes you believe something that is not necessary, you know, true to, to the eyes of others. So they create this in the minds over the years. So if you're born and somebody looked a certain way, you immediately they will say, oh, this is a Tutsi. Right. This person is tall, long nose, and all that. But that was um, really a way of controlling uh, a society which was okay before. <laughs> and that persisted yeah. long, obviously mm -hmm. long after the yeah. land became like a, a free, in air quotes, right? Like a free yeah. state. Yeah, a free state. And then kept, they kept using that instead of eliminating those uh, you know, the Belgian brought in the country, actually it brought, it, it took them into something worse, actually, you know, the hateful, the hateful, the hatred really um, increased in something really bad, you know, because the, if from one thing to another, so, <laughs> so it, it was, uh, it, it was a terrible thing that, you know, those who took the power, so, I mean, instead of, you know, eliminating those things and they actually continue to do something even worse than what was before, yeah. And that transition from mm -hmm. colonization to mm -hmm. uh, like sovereignty, I guess, or, or yeah. a democratic state has been um, uh, an issue all throughout Africa, right? Yeah. Is that something that has persisted until today as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, why? Why was Belgium interested in Rwanda? Because I know uh, through you know taking history courses and things like that that uh, Belgium had um, a large operation in the Congo where they colonized and they were extracting rubber. What uh, Rwanda is largely agricultural. Why why was Belgium colonizing there? Oh, that's a very good question for me. I never actually thought very much about okay. why because we don't have you know, minerals or anything mm. like other different countries. We are, you know, like you said, agricultural country. So, you know, that's mostly what we have. But they thought maybe um, actually by um, using, you having power for, you know, Eastern 
uh, all these countries, of course, they, they did in, in uh, Congo, so they were like in those countries surrounding. So, I mean, they made sure they wanted to have all these countries in, you know, in control so that they can do everything they could. So, I mean, Rwanda being a, a neighbor of uh, Congo, it, it, was probably, it, was, it was easier for them to, to do anything because they have so much there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It would be it would be impossible to cover the whole, whole like the whole history of, of Rwanda and of this conflict in yeah in this podcast. So I do recommend that people read your book yeah um, and read the other book that I mentioned, and I'll put that stuff in the show notes for everybody. Right. But I want to get to you were talking about uh, being a teenager in the early '90s and being fearful that something might happen mm-hmm. while not necessarily knowing it would be genocide. So maybe like in the history we should start with, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, a plane went down with the president or a prominent politician, is that true? It was a former president, yeah, okay. yeah, was shot down at the uh, airport arriving from uh, the neighboring, the Tanzania, Russia. Okay. Yeah. And then that then became the scapegoat for yeah. beginning genocide? Actually, because of uh the other time they used as a way of uh, saying that the Tutsis are the ones who shot him but it was uh it, it, because the genocide is not something that happens that happens just like right. you know right away they could tell people kill others immediately so it was well planned and and they used it as a way of saying oh you, you, the Tutsis killed him, so now, so you are going to be killed. So they used uh, as, um, I don't know, you used, used the word space, scapegoat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to use the term. <laughs> <laughs> you use it, so, but, um, and it, to, to us, it, because throughout the country, immediately, most of majority Hutus picked up their machetes. Mm-hmm. So, um, to me, um, they used that way of saying, oh, now you, you're the ones who are part of his death, so, but it's not true, so, right. <laughs> yeah. Because the genocide was uh, well planned, and, and they had everything already planned of the way, and they already uh, spread um, before even, you know, before uh, his death, that the Tutsis must be killed. So the hateful languages and all speeches throughout the country. So it was all over. So right, yeah. uh, radio was a big thing too. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which was uh, actually a main way of reaching out to so many people throughout the country. So that was mm-hmm. the only thing at that time they can use to reach out to anybody wherever you live. So yeah. Yeah. I. I Maybe it would be hard for us to articulate this, but I was thinking, how do people get to that point? I think that uh, without making too much of a political statement about the current state of things here today, there's a lot of, it appears there's a lot of hate right now um, as our country and as, or as the United States and as a lot of countries right now become more globalized, meaning that there are people from different regions, different ethnicities, different nationalities, uh, living together, like, there's, what's the word for it? At least what's being portrayed in our media is like, it's, it's uncomfortable some, for some people. Some people seem like they're not able to get along together or they're thinking that 
you know, America first. So I'm just wondering how you think people can get to the point where they do pick up a machete. Is it, you know, that it's just so deeply ingrained, you know, from colonization? Is it that the propaganda was so strong over the radio? Can, can you identify why somebody might do that? Yeah, oh, thank you for asking that. Um, as you, you know, it's, uh, when somebody is going to do something really uh, big like that, that means they they have learned, they have, they have really allowed it in their minds for a long time. So the radio was uh, a, a way of um, really um, making people's minds to believe that the Tutsis are not, um, uh, are not supposed to be part of the community, Rwandan community. So the hateful language, the hateful messages uh, some people really um, kept. Some people really believed what they were hearing, so they really got consumed by all these uh, hateful language, and and most of them were talking about it in their households. So especially when you keep hearing this over over again, uh, it gets to if you're not careful, you can be consumed by that. So and then you get to a point where you feel like. Um, this person is, is is not like you are so and it was really something uh that was really uh going on throughout the country many for a long time uh and um and it was it, it got to a point where um it was really making all of us who were part of the ethnic you know group tutsis to be careful like you always be careful in your workplace or at school or other places because you you feel like you can be attacked or you can be harmed anytime because someone in a higher you know position is really telling your neighbor to do that who is your neighbor the person who's supposed to uh, you share you know you go to the market in the same places or but then now this person is being told you know is being um this person um is being this person is is, is um accepting that you are not really like him or her so it, it's uh it's um to me uh it's something that happens um like you know, if you allow that, really, <laughs> it can cause a genocide. Anywhere in the world, people allow hateful languages. So it's not a great thing because uh, it can really take you to a bad place. So to me, I think um, it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you talked about how uh, the genocide itself was, was systematic and it was well planned and, and that takes a while to do. Um, the genocide itself, once it began and people were being killed, was actually pretty quick, right? There were a lot of people who were, were murdered in a short time frame. Mm -hmm. um, do yeah. you remember, I guess, the point at which that started, uh, you know, in terms of your own personal timeline? Yeah. Yeah. Um as you mentioned, um, you know, when the genocide began, 
throughout the country, um, so many people were murdered, especially the Tutsis. So, um, and one of the things that I can mention that was scary is the fact that everything throughout the country shut down. Like schools, like anything people really uh, supposed to be doing, most of the people stopped doing that. So because it was already, um, you know, throughout the country it was already, the, you know, the killing. That was the only thing that was happening. So, and one of the things that was so scary also is the fact that they told people that um, instead of, you know, when you're saying you're going to work, <laughs> normally it's going to, to do something productive for your community, your, yourself and others. So, and now, so they were telling people going to work means they, they are going to kill people. So, and it was so scary because of millions, I remember myself, you know, as a 14 year old, you're just a teenager, you, yourself, you, you couldn't believe what you were seeing. Um, and myself seeing, uh, you know, a lot of people leaving their homes and running to find a place to hide, all of us trying to find a place to hide. It was very, very difficult for me to, to see. Um, and, uh, and, and immediately, and I remember in my, uh, in my village, seeing homes being destroyed, uh, the homes of people, our homes uh, and people's uh, homes I knew, the Tutsi's homes, being uh, burned down. So it was so scary for me to see that people can really have a mind of doing such thing to the people that have never done anything just simply because they are who they are. They, you know, you are doing something horrible to a person who didn't do anything wrong to you. So it was very terrifying for me to, um, even now I think about it, having, uh, I always see image of how you know, I saw people, all of us, running, so how really scary it was at that time, so, yeah. And there was a, a process of mm -hmm. dehumanization, right, yes. where mm -hmm. uh, people were called cockroaches, mm -hmm. and maybe in someone's mindset that that makes it easier to do something violent if you're dehumanizing someone, like this, mm -hmm. this isn't actually a human being that I'm doing yes. this to, it's, it's, it's something other. Um, Another thing I was thinking about was that when I had Sally Frischberg on here, mm -hmm. she talked about how important it was to have assistance from people, even though that was still hard to find. Mm -hmm. I think I'm remembering correctly. You, you just mentioned that, uh, how horrible it is to have um, a neighbor you've known your whole life then mm -hmm. turn their back on you. And that also makes me think of uh, Haiti and Baby Doc. Mm -hmm. But um, were there any neighbors or relatives or anybody that provided assistance along the way when you were hiding and, and you were trying to find safety? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, any society, even though things like that, horrible things happen, but there are people who are, they, they're always good people there. So there are always uh, um, people who don't, really believe in what they see and they're always doing whatever they could to support and help and and uh for us to survive the genocide because someone who was part who was a hutu at the time didn't believe in the hateful language they were they wanted to 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 help and hide us so 
And for me, um, we luckily were able to find those people. Um, and, and even though we found so many people really um, being part of the kinning, but we were able to, to find someone, some people who were someone who was kind enough to say, I'm going to hide you. I'm not going to allow you to be, you know, uh, to be searched like this. So, and one of the um, people that actually helped us during the genocide, which is, is, a, is a incredible to me, uh, you know, as a Christian, we are a Christian country, but this was a, a Muslim person mm -hmm. who, at the end, of course, before, throughout the three months, we were, we were hiding in many, many places where we found people who were so bad to us. We found, you know, of course, the horrible things. But at the end, we were able to find someone in the Muslim community who um, um, was so kind enough to say, um, you know, who stood up for us at the end. It was like, I'm not going to allow anybody to do anything to you. So uh, we were Christian, he was Muslim. So, and, um, and I really am always thankful to people like that because we have, I'm not the only person in the country, in Rwanda, who uh, really uh, was helped by someone like that. So, and these these people were, uh, we, we found those people who really took risk and they would do something sometimes, um, you know, you will see uh, it's very, it's very hard because I really tried to even mention in my book, um, a man who was where we're hiding were discovered in, in that um, area of Muslim community. So uh, he was Muslim hiding people in his house and, and he was found with them and they killed him with those people. So I, I, yeah, these were people I knew. So at that time, my mother and myself, uh, you know, we, we, of course we escaped because someone stood there too. So to say, I'm not going to allow you to kill these people. So miraculously we we survived but these people didn't survive so but um yeah in, uh, there are some people really we appreciate and we really honor now who are really uh who really stood up and say we can't you know we we can't do this and we are going to do whatever we could so yeah yeah in your book you detail and again if, if there's any part of it that uh, you don't want to discuss, you don't have to, but you detail that essentially you lost most of the members of your family. Um, and you were 14 years old, right? Right. So how did you end up getting out of that situation? Was it that uh, man that you were just talking about that had sheltered you, or how did you essentially survive when so many people didn't? Yeah, um, to me um, it was a miracle because throughout the three months it was not only that person that many who hit us at, at that time, only throughout the three months, it was actually at the end, so when, you know, at the end of uh, the genocide, so when we were able to to find him and hit us, but but before, we were hiding in many, many places where it was hard and were just, um, you know, my, you know, I mentioned in my book about my siblings, uh, my father in the beginning who was uh, murdered before, so April 15th. Um, and, 
and the and, and my three brothers um, in May so 9th when we we kept hiding which was very hard because throughout the three months my mother um, because my younger brothers were young I was 14 of course as you can imagine the rest of my siblings were very young so and the youngest one my mother would just carry that boy on her back every time you go through the, the bushes because we lived in a village it was not an, in, the, in the city so uh, and of course as you can imagine some people who uh, helped us were pretty much poor people most of the people and uh, it was um, hard um, we, we had to go through the bushes it was a rainy season and um, is uh, it was very tough for uh, for my mother, you know, to carry all those kids with her and finding a place to, um, uh, you know, to to keep them, especially was, you know, uh, we were hungry most of the time and it was, uh, and as a person, because my parents were teachers, you know, they were able to take care of us, but, but then they can't do anything anymore. They are not even allowed to, uh, to be in an open place and helping their kids it was tough for my for them so um and um as i mentioned in the beginning my dad was murdered so and um we kept hiding which was very hard and um anyway and we were discovered in one place where my brothers were taken to our destroyed home and they were slaughtered and through their bodies in a septic tank so it was um, very tough for my mom and she just, you know, lose her children and uh, we didn't know we were going to survive because throughout everywhere they were searching to, you know, they were hiding machetes, they were going through the bushes every place, searching whoever they found, they killed them, so, um, and many bodies were everywhere, so. And for me and my, my mom and my siblings, we didn't know we were going to survive. So it was just to keep hiding, to find whoever has a good heart to help us. So, and, um, and when my brothers were, right after my brothers were murdered, so it was tough for all of us to keep hiding. So, and especially for my mom, you know, as a parent, for someone who is a parent can imagine the pain she had in her heart and how she was feeling so and but when you're about to survive so many things keep happening so that's how um um we even though we were you know found the people to help us so many bad things happen and um as i tried to mention in my book um more, most of the conflict zones and many where, where they have wars and genocide. So um, even if you're, you know, you, you are alive or you are, survive, you are hiding, sometimes the horrible things keep happening. So especially for the young girls and women. Uh, and, and at that time during the genocide, um, rape was used as a weapon. So even every young Tusi girl or a woman, wherever you're hiding, so it was not very easy to to see that even if you you find a place to hide, you know, rape is not going to happen to you. So, and most of them were raped. So, and some of them were raped by multiple killers. So, and 
uh, killed right away or they were kept for you know until for a long time just to be a slave of um, uh, of torture so and for me and my mom and my sister who are still alive uh, we did, we thought you know there was uh, we could have you know we're going to we didn't know where you know a safe place to be so and um, unfortunately um, I you know as among those you know women and the girls I describe what happened so um, I was raped so and which was very uh, I, I just want to be killed immediately so I didn't even want to leave anymore so but um, at the end that's when we were able to um, uh, to find this Muslim man um, who was kind enough to take us in his home and um, and we survived so but it was a lot of horrible things happened before we were able to get there so yeah when, when all this is occurring how publicized is this to the rest of the world um, I, I, I want to get into it a bit I know that there's a lot of criticism about the lack of involvement from the US and other countries but um, was this something that the US and uh, other Western countries knew was happening while it was happening? You know, um, later, of course, I had myself to, to, to learn and ask why, you know, these things kept happening to us, no one was reacting, so, and uh, it, it was, it, it's very hard for so many of us survivors to think that, um, uh, so many countries were watching, especially those in, in the power to be able to intervene, maybe um, help. Um, but um, that's why I really admire Romeo Dallaire, what he did. So unfortunately, uh, he's suffering from, you know, for, for what he, he has seen because the United Nations didn't help him to, to help us. So. And um, uh, for him, I really feel the pain that, you know, for him now he's suffering with the PTSD because of that. So um, it's very hard for, you know, for so many, you know, of us because I'm sure they could have done something because they could have been able to really, um, the way I, I looked at it, to me, they could have stopped it, really. They could have done something. International community could have done something because um, you, you can watch people really die because it's not right to me. <laughs> it is really confusing when you think yeah. about, like, what global issues the international community does choose to get involved in. Um, I think that right now we're watching uh, what could essentially be described as genocide in Syria. Um, I've been reading lately about how famine is such a big problem in like, Yemen and Somalia. Um, I think I was reading Nigeria as well. Uh, is it something as nefarious as like collective racism? What is it about these issues that don't get addressed when other issues do. I mean, it's hard for you to answer that for someone else who's yeah. choosing, but do you have any idea? You know, it, it's very difficult for me to uh, really answer this because um, 
in my mind, I'm thinking these are human beings like us who are making decisions. So, and I would think that they will put themselves in those people's shoes and see what if they are in their situation as someone who would, you know, support or do something, how would they feel? But it's harder to, to see that um, they, you know, um, try to neglect the feelings, you know, probably feel the, you know, try to feel that way. But uh, for me, uh, it's hard, but, and I'm hoping that um, uh, it won't continue to be this way because we don't want to see um, the world, you know, people suffer this way because it's not fair to have a world where uh, people are, who are human beings are, you know, hurting other human beings. It, it, it just, uh, it's really hard for, uh, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, uh, maybe as we have now technology, the platform of social media or other ways, hopefully, the more, you know, voices they hear of people asking, please do something, and hopefully their minds are going to, 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 to change. They are going to be able to say, hey, uh, it's not right, because they, they can see the pressure of people, because there are so many people who are really pressuring you know, the international community to do something. And so hopefully uh, they, they will change the policy and maybe not necessarily be political, just think as human beings who are helping other human beings and just put politics aside and hopefully, and that's what I'm wishing to happen, hopefully. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that is the hope. Yeah. And it's yeah. connected too to yeah. um, mm -hmm. the fact that you were a refugee and that's a, another hot button topic today. Uh, I'll put this in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it, but there was a documentary short that came out that was nominated about, uh, I believe it was Turkish refugees and how almost daily people are showing up um, on boats that are like capsizing in uh, Greece. And again, not to keep harping on this, but right now, I think it's a scary time for people in America in the sense that with technology, jobs are going away and a lot of people with the election and with the sentiments that are going on, they have this uh, mindset of America first when there are difficult things, <laughs> to put it lightly, happening all around the world. And I'm just, I guess it's not necessarily a question, but I think you made a good point in that uh, education and exposure and access to media and the internet and things like that maybe is the solution to get people to uh, to care about people uh, on a global scale rather than just people that they identify with by race or nationality or something like that. Um, also in regards to refugees, there were refugee camps that were set up in Rwanda. That was set up by the UN, is that correct? Yeah, um, in what part of the country? I just want to know exactly. What you know, I, my in, in my history of this could be totally incorrect, yeah. but yeah. I, I believe I remember reading that um, the United States and France and the UN were setting up refugee camps at you know at the at the end of the genocide period, and that there was violence there as well. Do you recall that or? Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, because right after the genocide, of course, the rebel uh, 
army, which is now the current government, the um, RPF. So uh, after, right after they stopped the genocide, uh, they didn't have much means. Of course, they were the only ones who stopped the genocide. Of course, they came in a country where it was totally destroyed and there were bodies everywhere, refugees, of course, survivors. And, you know, um, the UN uh, came in and they were able to have some survivors, you know, have, you know, um, you know, camps and where they can be able to help them. So um, they had to do that because it was really difficult for, they were, I mean, most of the survivors' homes were totally destroyed. So, and to be able to find a way to help them, you know, go back, relocate and go back to their, you know, their places, their home, find a home and, they had to have those uh, places where they can have them at least for some time. So the UN came in, so that's how they were able to um, at least, you know, help in that area. So, yeah. How has uh, Rwanda recovered mm -hmm. since the 1990s? It was, to me, I, you know, as a, even though, you know, as a survivor myself and even knowing where the country came from and now I'm really um, um, amazed because, you know, we, our country was completely, totally destroyed. So, and now to see where it is right now with, uh, you know, the, the, the progress they've made in so many areas, you know, uh, it's amazing because um, as a country, you know, in any country that had something we had, I'm sure it's really tough for for any a leader to be able to, to find a way to uh, reconstruct the country in a very short time the way they have done it. So um, right now, um, even though for survivors we take some time to heal for what you went through, it will take some time because uh, it's in your, it's your mind and your soul. So that, was, and, but the country itself outside really, um, it has really um, reconstructed, and um, and people are really, uh, really energized to to do things. And young people, and and in terms of uh, you know the economy of the country really has grown, you know so much in infrastructure. You know the leadership. Of course, they, they are really energized to, to do so many things, and and um, and and now you know it, it it really amazes me a lot, and I'm so happy that I was you know I'm able to to really watch this, and and but uh, but at the same time uh, for uh, you know for survivors those who are, went through the genocide, it would take some time for them to to heal and and and, and be able to. Yeah, yeah, and but, but um, but so far to me, I'm I'm so happy, really, yeah. But still, when you go in the country, you are reminded of what happened because of so many memorials and um, sites of you know showing what happened and um, and and now educating young people for what happened. It's so important right now, so they are doing whatever they could to educate them so and, and uh, it, it was very tough so so hopefully that the ideology that was there before hopefully in the future nobody's going to have that anymore so yeah <laughs> well, um, um, 
not recalling the name of this book again. So again, in my show notes, I'll put this in there. Sorry, people. But um, I had read a book about Haiti and it had fictional accounts, obviously, with you know historical roots to the fact that um, after killings there and after sexual abuse there, when people had um, immigrated to Haitian communities in places like New York City, there were instances in which somebody had partaken in violence and abuse, and they're then like alongside a victim or somebody who recognizes them as such. So I'm assuming that there was a degree of that within Rwanda with people who survived and then go back into this new Rwandan community alongside people that they had seen uh, committing atrocities. Is yeah. this something that you're familiar with or have you heard of? Yes, I am familiar uh, with that. Um, it was very hard because, um, as you can imagine, the people who have uh, murdered, uh, the people are the neighbors who murdered their own neighbors. So, and a majority of them were, you know, most of the, uh, you know, majority of them were there. You are still all of you in, in the same country. So, and for the current government, they had to do whatever they could to have these people to live together again. So, and uh, it was it, it was really hard because. Um, you know, we had to be neighbors again. <laughs> and we had to meet again in the same school, in the same market, in the same, you know, every every place, so churches and all that. So, but they, they had to do whatever they could um, so that at least these people can live together in peace. Um, and as you can imagine, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work, especially for, uh, you know, to make sure that you know, um, there, there's a big, at least there's some sort of, um, you know, peace, you know, among those people. So of course they have achieved that, but still it's really uh, hard for a survivor to see someone who probably somehow not, maybe not coming to you and say, I'm sorry for what I've done to you, but they are there. Of course, um, it's hard. Not everybody really um, asks for forgiveness for what they have done. So there are some others who probably not even, you know, who are, they are just looking at you and they feel like, okay, you're not going to do anything to them, but they are, they are there just, um, yeah. It's hard for someone who lost someone and see what this person did and you see them, but, um, and also there are some of the, you know, survivors who really, um, they are very strong. And I think survivors really played a big role to make sure that they are, they are starting a journey of healing and, you know, um, and, and I think, uh, what they have done so far to me, it's, it's hard. It's, it's not very easy. It would take some time, but, um, we're able to live um, alongside with these people again, <laughs> like how it was, which was uh, not very easy. But um, but it's a great example of how you can start um, um, a life without without uh, doing something this person have done to you. But they learn from 
survivors because they real, some of them realize how come this person is accepting me when I did something like that. So some of them realize that, uh, learn from what, what the way survivors were behaving towards them. So, and I think uh, it was uh, it's a great lesson to some people. So to learn how to uh, not be hateful because we didn't want that in our country again. So we just wanted to be able to to teach young people to get along and just see like if somebody do something horrible to you, the only way of solving the problem is not doing the same thing. You have to find a, a, a it's a difficult way, but to heal and, and be able to learn to do better towards one another. So, yeah. So here in the U.S., yeah. in regards to your own process of healing, mm -hmm. what sort of um, networks are there? I know that you, I'm sure you needed um, yeah, of course. <laughs> therapy, um, yeah. you needed medical care. Yeah. Um, is there something like an official refugee status where you can receive aid or how does, how does that healing process work? Um, I don't know if... <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I think um, for every individual is different. It depends on um, where you, you reach and who you meet. So, and I think um, to me, I, I find there are so many compassionate people in this country. So, uh, and I was, for me personally, I was able to, to find them. So, who are so kind enough to to give me guidance and 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 and, and find a way to to do therapy? Uh, I didn't necessarily find any necessary any any place that was just for refugees or anything. It was more of like general, you know, support or anything okay. like that. So to me. Um, finding I, I was able to find a very so many of them who are see very good friends of me so I've been very supportive and and kind enough to to help me uh, start a journey of healing and talk you know have a therapist and be able to speak out so many difficult things I couldn't be able to tell anybody else so and it was really a great journey for me to um, start a, um, a journey of healing because not so many um, I think so many survivors need that, so therapy is so important. And, and I think um, there are so many, you know, I, right now, and I'm sure there are so many, I, I learned so many other places where people uh, come from different countries where they need a support of, or therapy or anything like that. So, and I think there are so many great places I've seen, so, you know, um, and, but personally I was able to, um, um, to have great friends and, and people who have been uh, part of my healing journey. So, and also talk about it, writing about it, and who have been so helpful in writing my story. So, and which helped me so much. So, and, um, and also, like I said before, so many, um, you know, survivors go through different painful, you know, uh, they have you know, so many, you know, painful things they are going through, psychological, emotional. 
so even physical so and some of uh, especially for the women who were raped during the genocide some of them have kids from rape and others have hiv or other you know physical disabilities because of uh, how you know during the genocide they were cutting you with a machete and so i have friends who don't have arms and and maybe their necks are almost you know cut you know in half so and and those uh, for me um i was very fortunate because even though i didn't have any uh visible uh you know pain to anybody but i had invisible pain so uh which is now i'm i'm living with hiv as a result of uh of, of rape so and and also dealing with um with uh, you know emotional pain so i had to really uh take care of that because um and i'm so grateful that i was able to to find you know um a support and a way of uh, doing that and if i didn't do that i would have been able to really speak what happened so i could probably not have been able to believe in right now i'm not sure what would have happened to me but since i was able to to be in that place i felt like there are so many survivors who're not going to be able to talk about the experience or even now uh so many people who see go through what i went through that um and and I had to to be a voice using my voice in the way i could i'm not very much an, an expert in anything but i just use uh my you know my personal experience and also what i know hap it's happening in the world to be able to um you know use that voice in a way of um uh helping people to to learn and and maybe follow what happened and make sure they are being a voice as well so yeah <laughs> is there a point yeah. where mm -hmm. forgiveness is possible um you yeah. seem like somebody who's very positive despite <laughs> all of this and i just yeah. i can see how maybe this would you know kind of consume somebody with with hate for the rest of their life um is that something that you uh have, have you come to forgive or is that something that that's ever possible in the future um thank you for asking that um you know i think uh, forgiveness is a personal to me i i i mean i see is a personal thing to uh a person individual thing in the way that you you see it so to me i find it's um forgiveness um uh, it depends on how you see it to me i think it's a best way of um it's the best thing for your well-being so to me um i don't want to hold any any anger or you know hatred towards any anyone who have done horrible things to me so i find it's not well for my my health if i want to live well so i don't want to really carry those you know any any bad things in my mind so and to me i find um that i got to a point where i felt i don't want to be um you know um i don't want to i don't want to think like that so i want to be able to take care of myself well and not be uh not carry in any anger or hatred towards the people who have done that so it has really helped me 
uh, in my journey. So, and I think um, uh, it really, it, it, that's how I see it for me, for myself. So, and my mother have done that too. So, and it, we have helped each other to see it that way. So, and it really helped us in our, in our journey of healing. So, and I think it's so important to find a way to find that in your heart. And if you could for you, just for your own well-being. So, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we are at an hour. Um, I, I want to thank you. I thank you very you much. That, uh, <laughs> it was an honor to have you on. Thank you. I think that your story is really inspiring and is really important for everyone to read, not just, you know, people who have been through something difficult or refugees or women. I think that everybody can take something from your story. Um, and I think that it really puts things into perspective when you might uh, be upset at someone for something that is quite trivial <laughs> in the scheme of things that could, could go wrong in life. So um, thank you for spreading your message. Uh, thank, you. thank you for exposing me to your story and um, thanks for uh, participating. In this. Thank you very much for having me. It was really nice talking to you and thank you for uh, really giving me this um, platform to be able to talk to your audience. So. Great. Thanks yeah. so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everybody. That is going to be it for this episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. Obviously, a very special thank you to Consoli for joining me today. Wanted to tie up some loose ends very quickly. I mentioned a documentary short, and that is called 4.1 Miles. I mentioned a book about Haiti. That is called The Dew Breakers, and the author is Edwidge Danticat. I hope that I'm saying that correct. All right, so like I said in the intro, please shoot me an email if you're interested in obtaining a copy of Consoli's book, and I'll send a couple copies of those out. All right, everybody, as always, much love, take care of each other, peace.